0: It's election season. Do you know who you're casting your ballot for? Are you sure? We're looking at reports of problems with voting machines statewide today on the Texas Standard.
1: Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rant Group, software delivered as promised, no surprises. I'm David
0: Brown. The White House calls for more than 5,000 active-duty troops to be sent to the border to intercept a so-called migrant caravan, and their mission doesn't seem so much backup, as front lines will have the latest. Also, the president announces a plan to end birthright citizenship. Can he do that on his own? We'll take a closer look. Plus, flares in the field, why oil companies may be underreporting. All those stories and more. The Texas Standard gets started right after this. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard time on this October 30th, 2018. I'm David Brown. Thanks so much for spending a bit of your Tuesday with us. Listening to the news this morning, I was thinking about a phrase I hadn't heard in a while. It seemed to be rather popular in the 90s as the American conversation turned to something called the culture wars. The phrase I'm thinking about? Wedge issues. During election cycles, commentators noted that certain politicians would trot out so-called wedge issues to galvanize the base or force a wedge into an opponent's campaign to separate the hardliners from the moderates. In the old days, gay marriage was often described as a wedge issue. Abortion rights, too. Crime has been a frequent go-to over the years. But in the run-up to Election Day 2018... It's hard to argue that there's any issue more divisive at the moment than immigration, what might be described as a wedge issue that's been around in the U.S. since long before the term was ever coined. Case in point, two front-page items we'll be focusing on today a little later in the broadcast. We'll explore the president's declaration of his intention to unilaterally end birthright citizenship. But first, a plan that is already in motion. You may have heard last week that the White House was sending 800 active duty troops to the border to defend against what the president has been describing as an invasion, specifically a caravan of thousands of would-be asylum seekers from Central America. Well, now the White House is ratcheting things up on the border more than fivefold. Julian Aguilar is reporting on this story for the Texas Tribune, and he joins us now from his base in El Paso. Julian, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Thanks for having me back on. So we are talking about an increase in the number of troops that the Defense Department plans to send to the border. What is the latest? Well, the latest, uh, as you mentioned, um,
2: we initially thought 800 troops. Uh, of less than 24 hours ago, we were told that that's the amount that's uh, on their way just to Texas, part of a total of 5,200. So more than 5,000 active duty Military personnel does indeed drive a, a wedge, as you alluded to earlier. So they're on their way. They're going to be here um, in El Paso and Brownsville and um, Arizona, California by the end of the week, according to General uh, O'Shaughnessy, who spoke yesterday uh, about this issue with the CBP Commissioner in Cleveland. Um And, uh, you know, the president's delivering on one of his. Um, most divisive promises, if he can't get his wall and he can't, you know, end um, certain asylum people, if he can't get around uh, banning people from certain countries, then he's going to do what he can, and in this case it's putting more than 5,000 military units on the Texas-Mexico border, or on the U.S.-Mexico border, I C- uh,
0: CPB, uh, just to be clear, that's Customs and Border Protection. Why the escalation, though? Why from 800 to this jump to 5,200? It's unclear what happened over the course of the last 72 hours.
2: But with respect to what they're going to be doing with Customs and Border Protection, we have to remember that the U.S. military, active duty or National Guard Reserve, they're prohibited um, unless there's extreme circumstances from policing their own people. So what we have, you know, less than 24 hours after this announcement is people already criticizing this as a, as a waste of taxpayer money, as nothing more than show. But. This really is something unprecedented. Speaking with the Texas Border Coalition on Monday, they've always taken National Guard deployments on the chin. They said, look, they work behind the scenes. You can't mm-hmm. really see them. You don't even know that they're here unless right. you walk into a restaurant or something. This is going to be something that people are expecting it is going to be completely different. We're talking 150 miles of razor wire to pop up makeshift barriers along the border. We're talking helicopter companies. We're talking mobile command posts, mobile, you know, mash units and medical tents. I mean, this is going to be something that we, we see in other countries, I think. And if the president's desire is to sway you know undecided voters by this military buildup well i think that's going to be an experiment that we'll see how that plays out a week from the day
0: yeah i want to make sure i'm clear on something you're saying razor wire so even though that we don't have a literal uh wall made of concrete or or what have but, you as uh, the president advertised uh, during his campaign this sounds like it would be an effective wall if you're putting up razor wire al- along the border you're effectively shutting down the border
2: the the general said uh, during his press conference with the the CBP commissioner yesterday that they have 22 miles ready, 22 miles of concertina wire, which is the sort of circular uh, razor wire you see on top of detention centers or prisons, um, and they had about another 125, 130 miles ready for deployment wherever they needed it on, on the border. So yeah, this is this could be just a makeshift barrier wherever they decide they need it. Uh, these helicopter companies, they can deploy CBP officers within a minute's notice to wherever they are. You're going to see, you already do see CBP helicopters hovering over the border uh, with a lot more frequency. So this is going to be, it's definitely going to be a show.
0: Let's focus on that uh, caravan that uh, began in Honduras, still hundreds of miles away from the border uh, with the U.S. and and Mexico. Uh, my assumption is that it could take weeks for them to arrive, but maybe I'm off there. What, what is the latest, and how many people are we talking about we, uh, earlier reports it said seven thousand
2: you're exactly right it could take it could take several weeks depending on what the Mexican government offers them, depending on the situations they encounter along the way, depending on you know some of these folks might just be out of money and have no resources left but to turn around and go back or stay in mexico uh, and initially you're correct it started with more than seven thousand. Central American migrants mainly from Honduras um, and as far as reports Monday it's this it's about half of that now again some folks are giving up and turning around some folks are realizing that Mexico is a better place to stay um, and some folks are just you know still trying to figure out their next move and it's also unclear obviously in Texas we know that the Rio Grande Valley is the entry point has been since 2013 2014 for a lot of these folks coming up from Central America but we also have to remember that the previous caravan a few months back that they mainly went through Tijuana. We also have the ports here in New Mexico, El Paso. So we're, it's really, really uncertain where they're going to enter. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, based on history, we can assume that a good chunk are going to come through the Rio Grande Valley. But again, that's still something that's up in the air. And how many will there be? There, there are going to be fewer migrants coming up than there are going to be
0: soldiers on the border if this full deployment takes place. Julian Aguilar reports on politics in the border for the Texas Tribune. Julian, thanks. Thank you so much. Attorney General Ken Paxton, a Republican from McKinney, holds a 12 point lead in his re election race. That in the latest poll from the University of Texas and the Texas Tribune. And his wife, Angela, is a heavy favorite to win a seat in the state Senate. Still, Democrat Justin Nelson is trying to keep the spotlight on the fact that there are three indictments against the current attorney general. Nelson says he wants to change the rules about corruption. KUT Austin's Ashley Lopez looks into what he means and whether he can.
3: Earlier this month, Justin Nelson stood outside one of Paxton's offices in downtown Austin. It was a windy day, and Nelson had this big placard with Paxton's face on it and huge letters spelling
0: the word indicted. I intend to make sure that we are going to fight fraud and corruption wherever it exists and regardless of party, because let's be honest, corruption knows no
4: party.
3: Nelson, a law professor at UT Austin, has focused a lot of his campaign around the idea that his election would clean up corruption and serious legal issues that have plagued Paxton's time in office. And those issues started less than a year into Paxton's first term when this happened.
0: We begin tonight with a political bombshell.
3: This is a report from NBC5 in Dallas, Fort Worth.
5: Two sources now tell NBC5 that the top law enforcement official in Texas, Attorney General Ken Paxton, is now an accused criminal. He has been indicted by a grand jury in Collin County. Nelson contends
3: that Paxton's ethical lapses didn't end there. He argues that since that indictment, Paxton has taken advantage of certain loopholes. Namely, Nelson says, he's taken advantage of a pre-existing relationship loophole for individual contributions. This allows anyone who has a personal, professional or business relationship with someone like Paxton to contribute unlimited gifts to them. Nelson told reporters that loophole is a problem.
0: That's what Mr. Paxton used when he accepted a $100,000 gift to his legal defense fund and then dropped a healthcare fraud investigation for pennies on the dollar. That is wrong. The people of Texas deserve better.
3: Nelson presented a plan that would limit that loophole to immediate family only. His plan also promised a complete contribution ban from any registered lobbyist or attorney that had a legal matter before the AG. Nelson also says he wants to create more transparency and disclose any meeting he takes if elected. He also wants statewide elected officials to be banned from lobbying for the five years after leaving office.
0: I intend, regardless of what the legislature does, to honor and follow these guidelines on my first day in office.
3: Paxton's campaign did not respond to multiple requests for comment. But Jim Clancy, a former chairman of the Texas Ethics Commission, says he sees some issues with that plan.
2: The biggest thing that the AG has is the discretion with how he pursues or defends the legal business of the state of Texas, but I don't I don't see that this has anything to do with that.
3: He says what we're talking about here are the state's bribery statutes. Clancy says it will take change in the laws to really make a dent in dealing with that.
0: It's not up to the attorney general or, or the candidate for attorney general to change that. That's the legislature. They would have to change it.
3: Clancy says it's important to understand that the way Texas laws are set up around contributions is that there are no limits, but everything needs to be disclosed. But even if the underlying laws don't change, Nelson says he wants to change the culture of the AG's office. In Austin, I'm Ashley Lopez for the Texas Standard.
0: Hey, just a quick reminder, early voting ends Friday and Election Day, of course, is next Tuesday. Wherever you happen to be in Texas, you can get a personalized ballot that shows only the races that you'll be voting on. Just go to TexasDecides.org and type in that address. This is a joint project of public radio stations across the Lone Star State. And we know what that signal means, right? Social media editor Wells Dunbar is back in the house. What's the talk of Texas on this Tuesday?
6: Hi, David. Well, as you were just discussing moments ago, a new military operation drawing thousands of troops will focus on hardening the U.S.-Mexico border, as it's been described And as uh, another uh, aspect of what you just mentioned. That includes running hundreds of miles of razor-sharp barbed wire along links of the border. Lots of reaction to this story online. On our Facebook page, Janice Hitchcock has an interesting perspective. She asks, so... The President of the United States is sending troops to take the land on Texas and put fencing up around it. Funny that the folks who spent months freaking out about military exercise are perfectly okay with this reference there to a Jade Helm, I believe, a military exercise. Right, right. Many conspiracy theorists on the far right. Meanwhile, Brian Keen says this about the troops to be sent out take active duty guys away from their families for the holidays. No Thanksgiving, maybe no Christmas for you. Just sending in the desert. Board. Just a couple of the reactions we're seeing on our Facebook page, both in response to this and the other day's big news that you mentioned earlier, David. That uh, announcement from President Trump that he wishes to end birthright citizenship enshrined there in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution came out in an interview, I believe, with Axios. That's right. Yeah, that's uh, right. News outlet. We're, uh,
5: we're,
0: we're going to be exploring yeah. that a little later in the broadcast. So you're going to want to stick around for that. You know, an interesting thing Julian was telling me he was saying, What do you do about folks who cross daily into places? Places mm-hmm. Like El Paso and Brownsville. You know, how do you deal with that and will the military uh, impact that? We would love to hear from you, Texas. Tweet us at Texas Standard Wells back in 35.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at SaveNowForCollege.org. Happy Tuesday,
0: Texas. It's The Standard. I'm David Brown. There have been reports during early voting in the Lone Star State that some voting machines in the largest counties are switching voters' ballot choices. So what exactly seems to be going on? Well, Texas Public Radio's Ryan Poppy reports that the company that made the machines, as well as the Texas Secretary of State, are both pointing to user error. The Texas Secretary
7: of State's office has received fewer than 20 complaints from voters who attempted to vote a straight ticket ballot. They say that their U.S. Senate choices were either deselected or changed. Spokesman Sam Taylor says the complaints come from voters using the Hart InterCivic eSlate voting machine.
6: If voters clicked the button too quickly or started spinning the wheel before the screen had finished rendering, then it could deselect or uh, change one of the choices of one of the candidates on their ballot, depending on how quickly they were spinning the wheel.
7: Taylor says the Secretary of State's office received similar voter complaints ahead of the 2016 presidential election. Steve Sockwell, with Heart Inner Civic, said in an email that the E slate machine can only record what a voter selects. He said, There is no way the machine can flip or switch votes. Taylor says the Secretary of State's office investigated the matter. And it agrees with the company. Taylor says the machines are designed so that they cannot be manipulated.
6: None of the machines are ever connected to the Internet. In fact, the computers that program the machines are never connected to the Internet. They're all standalone devices.
7: This particular voting machine is used in 78 Texas counties, which includes Harris, Travis, and Tarrant counties, but not in Bear or Dallas counties. Early voting ends Friday. For the Texas Standard, I'm Ryan Poppy.
1: Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at worksafetexas.com.
0: And you are listening to the Texas Standard. It's a trade that's been taught in high schools for decades, thanks in part to funding from a federal grant. But this year, the rules covering that grant money have changed, and that's causing consternation among some students and instructors. The Texas Standard's own Kristen Cabrera has the story.
8: So usually,
5: since the pink curls...
9: Yarnida Hernandez twists strands of her mannequin's hair into a cinnamon bun shape.
5: To start in the middle or to start, you know,
8: so you're going to have to part bangs.
9: She's a junior at Maynard Senior High School, just outside of Austin. Hernandez is one of just over 12,000 high school students who are currently enrolled in cosmetology courses in Texas. Once they graduate, they'll get their license and be able to quickly enter the job market, either forgoing expensive higher education or helping to supplement it.
8: I just want to be a lawyer, so I feel like a barber would be like a side job.
9: It's actually this flexibility of the profession that's been making it hard for the Texas Education Agency to quantify the course's success. The TEA is reviewing cosmetology along with many of the Career and Technology Education, or CTE, course categories. They are evaluating if they still meet the requirements to be federally funded by the updated Perkins grant program. In order to receive those federal dollars, a course category must be high wage, high demand, and have career pathways that include multiple entry and exit points. The TEA used Texas Workforce Commission data and numbers from a private labor market company to calculate what a high wage means for Texans. The number they came up with is just over $35,000 a year. But the Bureau of Labor Statistics says hairdressers and cosmetologists make less than that, an average of about $28,000 a year in Texas. Still, some say the exact salary range is difficult to nail down. That's because cosmetologists are often able to make their own hours and go into business for themselves. Bridget Sharp is with the Professional Beauty Association.
5: We we just sort of don't want to be held to this, this standard of you're only making so much a year because it's not reflective of what people are actually making.
9: Glenda Calloway is the CTE director at Houston ISD, the largest district in the state. She says another reason why the state's wage stats are so low is because cosmetologists rely on gratuity. There are a lot of tips that are are given to people in the cosmetology profession outside of their salary. And sometimes those don't all get reported in that sense. And so I think it's really hard to capture what the true amount is. The ability to make money, any money, immediately after graduation is one reason Maria Lopez is in the cosmetology program at Hempstead High School. Her school contracts with Lois Academy School of Beauty in Brenham.
8: Even if you don't want to do this, it's an opportunity to get money to be able to pay for what you want to do.
9: Lopez says the thought of being in the real world and supporting herself when she graduates has weighed on her since freshman year.
8: I've always been scared to just graduate school because I'm like what am I going to do I can't just be with my parents my whole life because they already have to pay for me they have to pay for my brothers too. everything food housing electricity everything
9: private cosmetology school can total up to twenty thousand dollars and the cost of getting a degree after high school continues to rise plus some students don't want to sit in a classroom for another four years the Professional Beauty Association's Bridget Sharp says that high school CTE programs like cosmetology provide different career paths for young people.
5: There are some students who, you know, who after once they graduate from high school, they don't have a ton of options. And it definitely does um, affect those folks who are on the you know lower socioeconomic side of things, uh, both in Texas and then
8: and nationally.
9: Data from the TEA and Texas Department of Licensing and Regulation shows that of the districts in the state with high schools licensed to teach cosmetology, close to half have student populations, which are 70% or more economically disadvantaged. Maynard ISD is one of those districts. The TEA says 74% of students there are economically disadvantaged, which means that they qualify for free or reduced-price lunch. About 60 students are enrolled in the cosmetology program at Maynard Senior High. The school's new cosmetology facility still smells of construction. So when Maynard CTE director Jill Renucci spoke with the TEA, it left her worried.
4: Okay, so I was told that actually the course would be retired.
9: But that's different from the message in a TEA statement emailed to the standard. It says in part, TEA's determination regarding whether certain programs meet federal standards does not mean the program cannot be offered. The decision to remove a course rests with the State Board of Education, not the TEA. So what does the State Board say? Georgina Perez is the board representative for District 1. She posted on her website that the board, quote, has made no plans to either delete cosmetology or take those classes out of the CTE chapter, end quote. The TEA says, for this school year, eligible districts received a total of more than $105 million in Perkins grant funding. To determine whether these programs will remain eligible, the TEA has set up several advisory committees made up of professionals, industry people, and teachers. These committees' recommendations will be sent to public comment in November. Then, the proposals will either go back to the advisory committee for revision in December, or straight to TEA Commissioner Mike Morath's desk for approval. CTE Director of Houston ISD, Glenda Calloway, is among the many people who will be watching what happens next to cosmetology programs very closely. I just really hope that the message gets out there that, that of how important this program is to students who are involved in it. It's the reason they come to school. It's a, It's... It... Now, now I'm going to get emotional about that. It's important to them. I'm Kristen Cabrera for The Texas Standard.
0: You remember a few years ago, there was a lot of uh, talk about the West Nile virus. It was in the headlines every day. Whatever happened to West Nile? Is it no longer a problem? Well, think again. We're going to be covering that as The Texas Standard continues. The roundup is next. Stick around.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at SoftwareAsPromised.com.
4: From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. The first funerals are being held today for the 11 people shot and killed at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue, and Jewish communities throughout Texas have been holding or planning their own memorials to honor the victims. In Houston, for example, synagogues will be holding Solidarity Shabbat services this Friday and Saturday, Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider reports.
0: Joel Dinkin, chief executive of the JCC, is a Pittsburgh native who grew up attending the Tree of Life synagogue. He told Houston Matters he was heartened by the strong show of support from local leaders and people of all faiths.
7: What I'm hearing from people is um, just a a frustration over when will this hatred and violence come to an end, how will it come to end, and uh, what can we do as individuals as a Jewish community, as a city of Houston, to begin to um, make a difference so that these things don't
1: continue to happen. The Anti-Defamation
0: League's Southwest Regional Office tracks anti-Semitic incidents across the southern half of Texas. According to the ADL's Dina Marks, the number of anti-Semitic incidents in that region doubled last year compared to 2016. For the U.S. as a whole, anti-Semitic incidents rose nearly 60 percent over the same period. In Houston, I'm Andrew Schneider.
4: A Texas city has received one million dollars to install solar panels and batteries at people's homes to meet energy demands. Georgetown is one of nine cities in the country and the only one in Texas to win the Bloomberg Philanthropies U.S. Mayor's Challenge. The year-long competition encourages local leaders to come up with solutions to some of the toughest problems facing cities, such as homelessness, the opioid crisis, and climate change. Jack Daly is the assistant to the Georgetown City Manager. He explains that while Georgetown is growing rapidly, it's exciting to see it win alongside larger American cities.
6: To use a,
0: a boxing metaphor, we're, we're punching above our weight class a little bit because we're with the likes of uh, Los Angeles and, and Denver and Philadelphia, so we're really excited.
4: Georgetown is already the first city in Texas to get all of its electricity from renewable sources. Daily says they expect to start installing the solar panels and accompanying batteries next year. Tomorrow is Halloween, but one Austin couple got a jump start on the festivities. For their party this past weekend, Nicole Jensen and Sherry Horner turned their home into a Waddoween restaurant modeled after what else? Whataburger. ABC affiliate KTRK reports that Whataburger even lent a helping hand, giving Jensen and Horner some signage to make sure it was an authentic experience. That's a look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogle for the Texas Standard.
1: Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the Texas Secretary of State, providing voters details on required identification for voting in person at the polls. More at VoteTexas.gov or 800-252-VOTE.
0: Thirty-three minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Drive along the highway in Texas's oil country and you've probably seen them. Flares burning off extra natural gas at oil fields. Now, authorities are supposed to be keeping tabs on this since flaring does have an impact on the environment and, of course, on policy decisions like promoting alternatives to oil. But how much do we really know about the scale of flaring in Texas? Maybe less than we think. From the energy capital of the world, Travis Bubenik reports on energy and the environment. From our partner station, Houston Public Media, Travis, welcome back to The Standard. Hey, good to be here. So flaring, generally speaking, is up anyway, as you've reported. Why is that? Basically, there are not enough uh,
10: pipelines in the ground in West Texas, enough space on those pipelines to move all the gas that is coming up. Um, When drillers are out there pulling oil out of the ground, they get a lot of what's called associated gas. This is natural gas that just comes up with it, and it's basically a byproduct. It's not really worth anything. They are certainly not drilling for the gas. They're drilling for the oil. That's what they care about. Mm -hmm. So all this gas comes up. They don't have enough infrastructure out there to move it all uh, because the area is just booming so much. And so they wind up uh, burning it off into the air, which is... Of course, environmentally speaking, not great. It's uh, a waste of you know a product too, but it is a better approach than just releasing it into the air, which is known as venting. Uh, that's a lot more dangerous to the atmosphere.
0: Interesting. Okay, so I was uh, I, I saw an article that S and P Global Market Intelligence had published, and it raised a, an intriguing question: Are some shale producers underreporting gas flaring? What's the theory here? So this is S and P's analysis of some NOAA
10: satellite data that they looked at. So to be clear, this is not my own analysis mm-hmm. of this data. Okay, uh, but basically they looked at you know real time satellite data of flaring that NOAA does, and they found that from 2012 to 2017, oil companies might in Texas might have flared off twice as much gas as they wound up reporting to the state, which then gave some reports to the Feds, the Federal Energy Information Administration. Basically, what's going on here is that SP asserts that there's this multi-layered reporting system where oil and gas companies report to state regulators who then report to the Federal Energy Information Administration. Got it. And they say in that chain of reporting, you know, some of these numbers might be getting lost or skewed too low. And they note that this could be happening intentionally or not, but that it looks like it's happening.
0: Okay, so let's assume the worst. Let's assume that there is intentional underreporting, just for the sake of argument, so we can understand what's at stake here. Why would oil companies have an interest in under-reporting the number of uh, uh, sites where there are flares? Well, there are limits on
10: flaring in Texas. I mean, the Texas Railroad Commission regulates this stuff. Uh, you have to get a permit to flare. The Railroad Commission, particularly in this boom time, is doing a lot of extending those permits and and allowing producers to flare, which they've been criticized before. But they've said that's just what's going on now, and it's necessary to keep the oil flowing. And you know, there's just this possibility that uh, companies are trying to make sure that they don't have to shut down their wells. I mean, you know, if flaring got too high, the Railroad Commission might eventually say, okay, our patience has run out, you've got to shut down these wells. And there possibly is some of that that's going on currently. But, you know, across the landscape, this seeming underreporting, if it's intentional, would be, you know, designed to keep the oil flowing, basically, because that's the valuable commodity. It's not this excess gas.
0: Uh, Doesn't that have uh, legal, if not criminal, implications?
10: I mean, yeah, there are fines, you know, for violating permits and violating state regulations on this kind of stuff. I mean, I, I sent the S&P analysis to the Texas Railroad Commission uh-huh. and a spokesperson got back and said, uh, you know, didn't really answer whether or not they're looking into this further, but said, you know, our highest priority is protection of public safety and the environment and that, you know, Texas oil and gas companies have to be in compliance with the rules. But again, no sign whether the Railroad Commission is going to look at this analysis in depth anymore in particular.
0: Is it safe, do you think, to to assume that there's more flaring than reported?
10: I don't know if it's safe to assume that. I mean, I, I think that part of this S&P analysis is saying that, you know, this, this multi-layered reporting thing could be losing some of the numbers. So that seems plausible, but I don't know if it's as high. I mean, this is their proprietary analysis that they've done. Uh, it's certainly something that environmental groups are concerned about. I mean, I can tell you just anecdotally that there are things that happen in the oil field that um are accidents you know there are faulty flares that are there are flares when you go out there that are supposed to be burning off this gas but uh just kind of like your oven at home the pilot light went out sometimes the flares go out and you know it can be a while before somebody gets down that dirt road and gets out there to relight it so i mean you know accidents happen and and things are um things happen in the oil field that you don't always expect but i don't know if it's to this degree.
0: Obviously it's something that folks are keeping an eye on, including Travis Bubenik, who reports on energy and the environment for our partner station, Houston Public Media. Travis, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. We are coming up on 39 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. Don't forget to tweet us and let us know what's making news in your part of Texas.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. To aid early detection, all women over the age of 40 should undergo routine screening, like yearly mammograms. More at TexasOncology.com.
8: My name is Jen Taylor-Friedman. I'm a Torah scribe from Canada. So a Torah scroll is a very important thing in a Jewish community. The Torah is the same book that Christians call the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible. Jewish communities write the Torah out in a big scroll, and we read from it every week, several times. And like any other object, with enough use and enough people loving it over time, it wears out. So every few decades, a community will commission a new scroll. Torah scrolls are written by people who are considered fit to pass on the traditions of the Jewish people. Traditionally, that's been restricted to men. Some congregations have decided to open up the leadership of their communities to people who aren't men. When I started out Torah scribing, there was basically just me and one or two others who I didn't know very well. Now there's probably a couple of dozen women writing and repairing Torah scrolls and other things. And we're writing Torahs all over the United States, all over North America, all over the world. Every single letter of the scroll has to be handwritten on parchment. Parchment lasts much longer than paper does. It's much stronger and it's much more beautiful. Parchment, properly treated, will last for hundreds of years, ink properly prepared will last for hundreds of years. When you write letters in a Torah scroll, those letters will outlast you and they'll outlast your grandchildren. There are 304,805 letters in a Torah scroll. You can make a mistake, and it can seem like a thing that you can't fix because you're writing with ink, but with a little bit of effort and some special tools, you can fix it. You can scrape off a letter that you've done wrong almost always you can scrape off a letter that you've done wrong and repair it. The only exception is that if you make a mistake when you're writing the name of God, mistakes between you and God are harder to fix. That's always the rule. You can't scrape off the name of God because that's like scraping off God and we don't do that. So Jewish tradition says that if you write even just one letter in a Torah scroll it counts the same as if you'd written the whole Torah yourself. So one of my jobs as a Torah scribe is to travel to communities that are creating new Torahs and help the congregants be part of their new Torah scroll. My name is Jen Taylor Friedman. You're listening to The Texas Standard.
0: 43 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. Remember back in 2012 when the West Nile virus was making daily headlines? Well, so far this year, just under 100 people in Texas are said to have confirmed cases of West Nile. But there's little doubt that many more Texans actually have it. In today's Spotlight on Health, Margaret Nicholas takes a look at why those reported numbers are so low.
5: 80% of people infected with West Nile virus never have symptoms. So that's a big reason confirmed cases are lower than actual numbers. But even out of those who do seek medical care with serious symptoms suggesting West Nile, less than 40% of adults and only a quarter of children are tested for it. That's according to research done by a team including Dr. Christy Murray. She studies insect-borne diseases at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. She says many doctors choose not to test for West Nile because it has no specific treatment or cure. But Murray says foregoing a diagnosis may put others at risk. You know, if we know what kind of cases we have, then we can go in and do mosquito control, you know, prevent other people from getting sick, doing what we can to educate people around where that person contracted the illness so that they can, you know, be warned that there's a, a dangerous virus that's in the mosquitoes in their area. Rosalie Kibby is also pushing for more testing. Her 13-year-old grandson, Cody Hopkins, died within days of getting sick with West Nile in 2016. Speaking at a recent meeting of the state's task force on infectious disease preparedness and response, Kibby told the group how hard it had been to get her grandson diagnosed.
9: Cody was in the hospital for two days, and my son-in-law, who's a vet tech for equines, is the one that recognized the symptoms of West Nile. And the doctor argued with him and said, there's no way he has West Nile. And then it took three more days to get the test back. So Cody, had, he, was, he was in a coma for five days, and he finally passed from
5: a heart attack. Human illness is one way we find out about West Nile. Testing mosquitoes is the other. But that information is also very incomplete. Currently in Texas, only about 55 of the state's hundreds of cities and counties collect mosquitoes and submit them to the state for testing, while just a handful of jurisdictions do the procedure themselves. Bethany Bowling is the microbiologist in charge of the state lab that tests mosquitoes for West Nile and other diseases.
9: Ideally, we would like to get them from every county so that we're doing surveillance. The idea is that we would detect viruses and mosquitoes before they're detected in humans. We want to avoid uh, human cases.
5: While the lab also tests mosquitoes for dengue fever, Zika, and several other diseases, Department of State Health Services spokesperson Chris Van Dusen says the program has the greatest potential to prevent West Nile transmission.
10: Of the common mosquito-borne diseases in Texas, it's the one you're most likely to find in mosquitoes before it gets to people, and so that's why the surveillance for West Nile is in, is particularly important uh, because it it really can be an early warning um, that lets uh, you know jurisdictions educate the public or do uh, you know some kind of um, integrated mosquito control.
5: There's no requirement that cities or counties monitor mosquitoes for disease, even if residents contract West Nile, but Van Dusen says the state provides training and assistance for those who want to participate. Meanwhile, attempts to develop a West Nile vaccine for humans have so far not borne fruit. That frustrates Dr. Murray, who sees people every day whose lives have been devastated by the disease. It it permanently impacts their lives. You see people who are paralyzed. We've done studies looking at you know, the brain, how much the brain doesn't recover from infection and that we can actually see the the brain get smaller in size afterwards because, it you know, it's basically like having scar tissue because you had this traumatic assault to the brain. A drug being investigated by the National Institutes of Health seems promising and could prevent a slew of diseases, not just West Nile. The vaccine, currently known only as AGSV, works to reduce the body's allergic reaction to mosquito saliva that itching and swelling you get with a bite. Dr. Matthew Memoli is leading the current research into AGSV.
6: Instead of developing a purely allergic response like you do normally to a mosquito bite, you would develop uh, less of an allergic response and more of an anti-infection response when you get bitten so that any organism that is present would have a harder time causing an infection.
5: But the drug is still in the earliest stages of testing, and even if it does prove successful, the entire process of assessing its safety and effectiveness will take years. In the meantime, improved reporting and surveillance could help, along with simply trying to avoid mosquitoes whenever possible. As Dr. Murray reminds us.
9: So all it takes is one mosquito bite of, you know, an infected
1: mosquito, and your life could be permanently changed from that point forward.
5: I'm Margaret Nicholas for The Texas Standard.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you.
0: You got it tuned to The Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Ending birthright citizenship. It's an idea that's been floated in the past. It was again floated by President Donald Trump in an excerpt from an interview released By the news organization Axios today, this coming just one week before midterm election day. So, just campaign talk, bluster, that sort of thing? Or what say those who study constitutional law? Stephen Vladek does just that sort of thing. He's a professor in law at the University of Texas School of Law. Professor Vladek, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Thanks, David. Great to be with you. This isn't the first time, of course, that this issue has come up. Uh, What do you make of the idea that a president could unilaterally uh, rescind birthright citizenship?
11: Um, I I make of it that he can't. I mean, I think the the key here is that the relevant constitutional text is Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, Mm -hmm. uh, which says that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the united states um the president cannot change that by himself now you know some folks sees on the subject to the jurisdiction right. of language right but the supreme court in 1898 um expressly held that that does not mean is here lawfully that just means that you are here not in a diplomatic capacity I that you're recall. Not a ambassador
0: i know which case you're referring to and i was rereading that case today and i noticed that in that case it involved uh the uh, child of a uh of, of, of legal residents, not uh, people who were here uh, without uh, residency documents.
11: So that, that's true. I mean, so the case is called United States versus Wong Kim Ark. And it's definitely true that that case involved, um, you know, individuals who had lawfully emigrated. But the Supreme Court's analysis of the text of the 14th Amendment did not turn on the fact that they were here lawfully. It turned on the conclusion that the language in the citizenship clause that says you have to be subject to the jurisdiction of the United States is not meant to distinguish lawful presence from unlawful presence it's actually meant to distinguish those who are here in their own capacity and those who are here solely in some kind of foreign diplomatic uh, representation role
0: now that's that's an interesting thing because a lot of people go back to the initial language why this birthright citizenship exists at all and perhaps we should touch on that too this came in the wake of the civil war and it had to do with freedmen right
11: It did. I mean, so the Supreme Court famously, infamously, um, in the Dred Scott decision in 1857 had held that slaves were not citizens for purposes of the federal constitution. Um, And of course, that's, you know, one of the court's more infamous, more vilified citizens history. Right. Part of the purpose of the citizenship clause, the very first sentence of the 14th Amendment. Was to overrule Dred Scott and was to make it clear that no matter what your history, no matter what your lineage, even if you had grown up in bondage in a state that treated you like property, Mm -hmm. you were still a citizen Um, and you were a citizen by dint of the fact that you were born here.
0: You know, this was made in the context of an interview, right? I mean, this is not a formal proposal. To our knowledge, there hasn't been anything that uh, the executive branch, any step that the executive branch has formally taken to try to rescind this. But let's just play this out. I mean, even if you assume that this is about politics and about an election season and trying to drum up support uh, on the right, um, you know, why shouldn't the president, uh, given the fact that this has come up time and time again, these questions about what this means... Why not uh, go ahead and, uh, and, and make such a move since you know that this is going to be challenged in court and test this once and for all? Yeah, I mean, I guess my reaction
11: is if you really believe what you're saying and you're not just doing this for political reasons, mm-hmm. the Constitution provides avenues for pursuing reform. The Constitution provides an express roadmap for, you know, changing the meaning of the citizenship clause. And so I think, you know, it would be a lot more convincing If instead of saying he's going to do this by executive order, the president actually took the, you know, legally appropriate step of proposing a constitutional amendment that would change the language of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, Um, you know, the reality might be that such an amendment would actually get through the House and the Senate, but perhaps not be ratified by the requisite 38 states. But that's the way the process is supposed to work.
0: Stephen Vladek is professor of law at the University of Texas School of Law. Professor, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us. Thank you. And you are listening to The Texas Standard. Border, border, border. Yeah. You know, it's a it's top story right now. Uh, Wells Dunbar, social media editor here at The Standard. What are Texans talking about?
6: Definitely. Well, following up on what we just heard, yes, Trump saying he would end the concept of birthright citizenship by executive order. Sure, sparking a lot of pushback online. On our Facebook page, Bobby Flood says, How sad that some Americans would just trash the 14th Amendment and cheer for Trump's actions. If Trump believes he can take away birthrights, what other rights do you think he believes he can executive order away? Interesting perspective there. Meanwhile, on Twitter, Genevieve uh echoes something that i've seen a lot of out there as well david uh seems to me this conversation is a way for all of us to stop talking about the 11 dead synagogue attendees the largest assassination attempt in us history referring there to all the bombs sent through the mail and another racist mowing down black people referring there to that shooting vote in every race vote in every election genevieve says so some people sort of see this as a distraction if you will mm-hmm. another listener sees something similar it's inseparable from the midterms joel says that trump is in spaghetti mode, throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks and get his diehards out to the polls and he does have supporters you know this concept of uh ending birthright citizenship isn't exactly like a fringe thing on the republican side it's got many supporters i believe ted cruz has uh, previously voiced his support of ending birthright citizenship one of them's tweeting us uh wolf she says that no one should receive automatic citizenship if the mother crossed the border just to give birth if the parents aren't in green card mode there shouldn't be any automatic
0: citizenship You know, every few years, it seems like this issue of birthright citizenship flares, uh, I think, as one uh, commentator said, briefly but brightly. Uh, And we see a lot of news articles. And I don't think we've heard the last of this conversation, even if the president doesn't move forward. I think we're going to see a lot more commentary built around this uh, this idea. Yeah, decidedly
6: so. And one uh, last interesting perspective here from Leah Keese on our Facebook page. She notes that the president may not be thinking about the thousands of service members serving overseas that this could affect. Birthright citizenship, citizenship works both ways, not only for those people born here, but also for those born to U.S. Ser- citizens serving around the world. Interesting
0: perspective yeah. there. As well. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, there's a group um, uh, that uh, is called Migration Policy. They, they, uh, uh, they publish, uh, I believe this is the Migration Policy Institute. Indeed, it is. And they have said that if, in fact, you were mm-hmm. to get rid of, uh, of, of this uh, 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 birthright citizenship uh, uh, section in the 14th Amendment, what you would be looking at is uh, basically the unauthorized population ballooning to 24 million in 2050 from the 11 million today. My that word. is all things uh, kept equal. Yeah. So it's interesting stuff. And uh, again, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about it. Definitely. Well, shifting
6: gears about 180 degrees, we all know that Halloween is almost here. So it shouldn't be surprising to learn, on a much lighter note, mm-hmm. that today is National Candy Corn Day. I have to ask <laughs> yeah, a very important question. When did candy corn become so controversial it just seems de rigueur to trash these sugary kernels oh, in certain circles, which really emboldens the candy corn supporters and apologists out there. So, I'm Are you trying... a candy corn guy? Uh, you know, I could kind of go either way, quite honestly. But I'm trying to get to the bottom of it. We have a Twitter poll asking where you stand on this controversial confection. As of right now, 58% says don't eat it compared to 42% who say it's the best. So it's still
0: time to vote, you know. What do you think, Texas? Still time to get to the polls. (laughs) Texas Standard. You picked out a costume yet?
6: Oh, yeah. Well, I won't be wearing it to work. I'll have something seasonal.
0: Yeah, we're going to have to keep that for tomorrow. Alas, we're out of time for the big broadcast. Hope you can join us again on Wednesday. Till then, have a terrific Tuesday.
1: Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation. Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. PRI Public Radio International.